afternoon, good evening, and good night. This is uh, Morris Bushtinsky speaking. Here you're listening to episode 133 of the Love That Album podcast. I hope that you're all doing well, all being safe on whatever part of the planet that you're on. We are living in crazy times, but no doubt every newspaper that you read, every television show that you watch, every other podcast that you listen to has been saying similar stuff. So basically, that's as much COVID talk as I'm going to be giving in this episode. All the rest is going to be devoted to music talk. That's what you're here for. That's what I want to give. At the end of the last episode, I said that I was going to be joined this month by lead singer, lead guitarist and songwriter of the Bondi Cigars, Mr. Shane Pacey, to talk about the wonderful album from the band Pentangle, their third album, Basket of Light. Now, Shane took ill and no, nothing to do with COVID. This had him laid up in hospital for a few days. He's now thankfully safely at home and being looked after. We both came to the conclusion that it would be best to defer his episode until he was fully better. Hopefully that will be next month. So all the best. Rest easy, Shane. So I was thinking, what am I going to do that will require a minimum amount of work for me? And what I did was I put out a call amongst the other podcasters in the Pantheon Network, which love that album is privileged to be a part of right now. And I asked the question whether anyone was willing to join me to have a discussion about favorite live albums. I was overwhelmed with so many responses, even had to put aside a couple of responses. So we'll be doing some shows later on, hopefully with those other fellows. But I've got six other podcasters within the Pantheon Network who all wanted to tell me about their favorite live album. So we didn't have a big round table. I just spoke to the host or hosts of each podcast individually. And that's what you're going to be hearing. Six 20 to 25 minute segments from each one of the following podcasters. First of all, there's Peter Ferrioli, who is one of the two heads of the Pantheon Network. And I'll let him tell you as to what his future podcast is going to be about. It's rather fun. Uh, the next one is Ty Listen, who's the host of The Band, A History. Uh, Joe Robluski and Ryan Dixon, who are the hosts of Highway Hi-Fi. And if you've listened enough to love that album in recent times, you know that I will definitely be pushing their barrow a lot. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Christian Swain, who's the other head of the Pantheon Network, and his shows are Rock and Roll Archaeology, Deeper Digs in Rock, and he's a co-host of Rock and Roll Librarian. So podcasting-wise, a very busy man, plus all the the other things that he does in keeping the Pantheon Network running. Uh, Marcus Goldman, who's one of the two co-hosts of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And finally, Brad Page, who hosts a show called I'm In Love With That Song. Each one of these gentlemen will be telling you a few things about their podcast so you can have a listen to what they have to say and then go and subscribe either to their individual podcast or to the Pantheon Network in general, where you can listen to, I think it's 35 different podcasts that are now in the network. So there's a lot of music discussion going on there. You can listen to one, you can listen to all 35. There's no shortage of music talk going on out there. My huge gratitude to all of these people for taking the time to speak to me about their favorite live albums. And this was really a lot of
lot of fun. I mean, it's always fun to be talking about music. That's why I do this podcast. But it was really exciting to be speaking to a group of people who, for the most part, I'd never actually spoken to before. They were all new. So please take the time to subscribe to the Pantheon Network or subscribe to any of the individual podcasts if you like what you hear in this show. While I still have your captive attention, before we get into the show proper, I'd just like to make it known that See Here, the podcast I do with Tim Merrill and Bernard Stickwell, that has been on hiatus since December of 2019, so about four months or so, uh, is going to be coming back in the next week or so. You should hear episode 72, maybe about the same time that this show is up, uh, or maybe just a few days after. We'll be discussing the 2001 film Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I'm very, very excited to be rejoining with Tim and Bernie. It's been way too long since we had any good film discussion, so looking forward to putting that in your ear holes. That will be episode 72, and you can find it on all the usual podcast platforms of choice. So that's episode 72 of See Here. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. All right, now we'll go to Joanne giving you the contact details, and then we'll start off with the first of the six discussions that I had over the course of this week. Hope you enjoy. I'll be back at the end of the show just to wrap things up. You'll listen to Love That Album, episode 133. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 133 of Love That Album Podcast. And as promised, this show is going to be mammoth. I'm going to be talking with a number of my fellow podcasters, my colleagues in the wonderful Pantheon Podcast Network. And they're all going to be telling me about their favorite live albums, or maybe just a live album that they think is underrepresented. So on the other end of a Skype connection to get the show rolling, I have one of the two gents who is responsible for putting the Pantheon Podcast Network work together. Mr. Peter Ferrioli, welcome to Love That Album. It's a pleasure, Morris, and I want to thank you for getting my name right on the first try, by the way. I never would have thought that that was a difficult ask, my goodness. Oh, geez, all the time. You know, I got to tell people, hey, it's like ravioli, I got to say ferrioli. So, Morris, it's an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. I hope I can live up to the incredible guests and all the thought-provoking content you provided for all those people in both this podcast, Love That Album, and obviously see here as well which we also listen to and we love so this is your music side of things and you do film and i think the album we're going to talk about actually crosses over a little bit into both i'm going to try to hold back on the whole film side which we could talk about for over 20 minutes and i'm going to try to i'm going to try to retain just the album side for 20 which i'm going to let you know will be very very difficult morris because i'm about to talk about a subject that's near and dear to my heart that i've actually had a concept for a podcast in mind for a long time. 
game, which is called Neil versus Everyone. So you, your friends, anyone can bring any artist onto my show. This is just a concept, by the way. It doesn't actually exist. <laughs> if any of your listeners want to challenge me on this show and I can begin it, I invite them to, to email us. Find us on our website at Pantheon Podcast. But the idea is this. Okay, if you put three words together prolific career and artist you get one person in my mind over the last 55 years in north america or america specifically now america's a young country morris right you're you live in a young country so 55 years of that is a pretty substantial percentage of that time would you not say it's quite a lot if you took the 55-year career of someone who is still making new pro music today or after 55 years, there is only one name, and that name is Neil Young. As recently as two days ago from when, the time we were recording this, he released a new song. Which he has in the can, which he has like 500 of them, so he did that <laughs> Did that with Crazy Horse a few months ago. It's actually embarrassing the, the amount of art that he can produce. He puts everyone to shame, even one of my all time favorites, Bob Dylan. Now, again, you bring on Dylan and bring on Neil, and I'll give you, we'll, we'll take it on. So, you invited me onto the show, and I am a, a big believer. Let me start off this conversation with this statement that live music is always better. Okay, that's it. That's it. I'll make that any day of the week. Give me a live version of a song, give me a great soundboard a matrix mix of the audience and the soundboard, any of these. There are certain genres and there are certain productions that are designed for in the studio. Now, I get that, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. But if you are a thriving, living artist and you are going on and producing your art in different formats, whether you're David Byrne or you're Jerry Garcia or you're Neil Young, whatever you're doing, in that box, in that studio, in that moment, it didn't matter. Artists are about the process they're not about the end result you know the end result is about what you and i consume mm -hmm. it's what you hang on to what we sell not to these guys i mean at least to the ones that i have loved my whole life as art and so that's why neil young was always the consummate artist the, the person who kept going on and on reinventing himself challenging himself and the world around him and to keep creating art that was relevant and that's what i want to talk about today's album which is going to be rust never sleeps started recording i confessed to you that sure. my introduction to neil young for a live album was live rust because i was in a record store i can get live rust or i can get rust never sleeps what's the difference the covers look well <laughs> they look like they're from the same concert oh this is two albums all right i'll get that one uh, i got live rust so never actually got a copy of rust never sleeps so you will now educate me what the difference is between Live Rust and Rust Never Sleeps. It's very interesting. So you, like the consumers and like history has shown, were correct in that Live Rust is a much better representation historically of Neil's career and the tour that begat the album Rust Never Sleeps, right? I'll step back a little bit. There was a tour that began in 1978 and it was the Rust Never Sleeps 
Sleeps tour. Neil Young had come off an album called Comes a Time, and prior to that had released Decade. He had been known at that time as more of an acoustic artist. You'll recognize his hits of Old Man and Heart of Gold from the mid-70s. So around 1978, he goes on tour and he has this idea for a concert that's more of a concept on his tour. Now, Live Rust essentially is the greatest hits of all the songs from that tour that you and I know and love today. That's essentially what it was. It was the soundtrack to that concert film, Rust Never Sleeps. And Neil actually wanted to call Live Rust, Rust Never Sleeps, but Reprise vetoed it because they didn't want it confused with the earlier album. So what Neil did was he went on tour, released Rust Never Sleeps, then wanted to release the live album of the soundtrack of the movie that was released on Rust Never Sleeps and call it Rust Never Sleeps. But the record label didn't want that. So he called it Live Rust. It was released in 77. He released Decade, which was a very big career retrospect, uh, essentially. And then this became a bigger retrospect because it included songs like My My Hey Hey which is Out of the Blue and Powder Figure and it became more from that acoustic folk singer into the transition of hard rocker that people came to know from that album Live Rust right it was okay I no longer know Neil as Heart of Gold Ohio Old Man Sugar Mountain Guy he's now this incredible crazy finger live tour de force that's in Live Rust today most people do buy that now Rust Never Sleeps is this interesting album where only seven of ten of the tracks are actually live and taken from the Cow Palace show in San Francisco in 1978. So Neil essentially takes seven of those tracks live and then he does three tracks that he did solo acoustic at the San Francisco boarding house and he makes this album that's basically called Rest Never Sleeps. Now Rest Never Sleeps opens up with My My Hey Hey out of the blue in an acoustic version, which is the version that every Everybody knew and they were used to from Cousins of Time and from the tour and it felt very Neil. And the next song on the album is Thrasher. And Thrasher is Neil's first release and venting at Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He basically calls them dead weight in the song and he kind of lets them go. And it's an acoustic song. And then he has an acoustic song, Ride My Llama, uh, an acoustic song, everyone knows Pocahontas, which is actually a cutout from a couple years earlier in the Cousins of Time sessions. And then he has an acoustic track, Sail Away. So there's two sides to this album. The first side is acoustic. Now, the second side is with Crazy Horse, and it's electric. And you have Powder Finger, Welfare Mothers, Sedan Delivery, and then a raunchy, dry, thrashing, throbbing version of Hey, Hey, My, My, Into the Black. He opens up the intro with the acoustic version out of the blue, closes it with the electric version, Into the Black. And it's a two-sided album. Now, it's released in 1979 and when the tour starts and when Neil writes the first song My My Hey Hey Out of the Black there's a couple lines that you probably know well and most of your listeners will know well which is Now, 
Now, that's a famous line from the song. Now, that line, Neil was a, grew up a huge fan of Elvis Presley. And Elvis had just died, right? And so Elvis dies. And Neil sees and feels what's happening while Neil is playing acoustic music here. And kind of in that FM radio mode where he was kind of had his hit songs and trying to get out of that and comes a time. He sees the punk movement. And he also sees everyone around him, his management, the promoters here in America and the East Bay pushing back against Huck, going, no, 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 that's it's violent. We don't want that here. They were into disco here in the late 70s. Like, that wasn't really happening. They didn't want it in America. Reporters like Bill Graham and people where Neil was booking his shows. So Neil has a take and a vision at the time that even though Elvis dies... Here's punk, and punk now is rock and roll. And hey, hey, my, my, rock and roll will never die. He sees the light in what he's been doing and going forward, and he's calling out everyone around him in that song about what's happening right now. That was rock and roll, and right now is punk. And what just died was Elvis, who was rock and roll. So I didn't understand that until Kurt Cobain died. So flash forward 25 years. 24 years or it's after this album the reason that i find this album as one of the most important live albums is because of the way he opens it he opens it as a folk singer talking about rock and roll and who he is and closes it as a thrashing punk grunge prodigionator and if you look at Powderfinger, Welfare Mother, Sedan Delivery, and Hey, Hey, My, My, the reason Kurt Cobain quotes that song at the end, It's Better to Burn Out Than Not to Fade Away, is Neil was called the godfather of grunge because of this album. This album sets off something in the future that's eight to ten years away where Neil's tapped into punk. And as a matter of fact, what's even interesting out of this album is his relationship with Devo right. and Donaldson Richmond, who essentially he breaks as co-conspirators in this movie he's making called Human Highway. But at the time that punk is happening and new wave is happening, here's this old hippie from Woodstock. Okay, <laughs> who's basically putting together a what the fuck is this moment in 1978 with a concept concert. It's really not a concept that, by the way, Neil's last concept album was Tonight's the Night. You know, when Danny Witten dies and Bruce Berry, you know, they die. His roadie and the original Crazy Horse guitarist died. He does Tonight's the Night. That album from beginning to end is a masterpiece concept. But people think Russ never sleeps. If you've seen the film now we're talking about on the concert tour, Neil challenges everything that's going on in the world and calling out pop culture references, the corporatization of concerts. He's been doing that ever since. I mean, the, the whole This Note's For You was his big fuck you to yes. uh, corporatization, wasn't it? Yes. So that, again, you know, I don't, I getting into his, the many protests beginning with For What It's Worth, Breath of Springfield, yes. to Ohio, to For This Note's For You, to Rockin' in the Free World, for Tiananmen Square. This is why he is the greatest artist by the way, you're 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 just giving me more fuel, so stop it. <laughs> okay, just stop right now. Let me focus on just this album. Sorry, I'm trying I'm to keep this up. 20 minutes. Okay, so now flash forward to 1993, I believe. I'm trying to remember the exact date. Was it 94? Anyway, I, I forget. For, forgive me for on the dates for when Kurt Cobain dies. So in 1989, there's a giant earthquake that happens in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the San Francisco Fillmore goes through the earthquake and gets shut down from 1989 through 1990 because of the earthquake. Now, Bill Graham decides to rebuild it, 
put all this money back into it. I get hired with a team of people in early 1993, and I worked for a year rehanging all the original posters from the 60s that were in the hall, hundreds of them. I spent a year almost in that venue before it opened. Now, while we were in there doing that, there was rumors about who the band was that was going to reopen. And months came up until the reopening of the Fillmore and everyone heard who was working there at the time that it was going to be Nirvana. We're like, oh my God, we're going to see Nirvana here open up the Fillmore. And Kurt kills himself, like in between when we find that out and the opening. Instead, we get the Smashing Pumpkins with David Lindsay opening, right? So we get the Smashing Pumpkins who in 1993 were at their peak, right? People still loved it in a, in a room full of 800. The film, by the way, is a tiny room. It's 900 people. So Cobain kills himself, and we hear about the letter. We hear about that he left the quote from Neil. Now, I, at that time, in 1993, had become a big Neil fan after moving to the Bay Area. He had a ranch out here about 30 minutes away, and he would do a lot of secretive warm-up shows here, and people I knew worked for him and knew the ranch and all that stuff. So I went to a lot of his shows and he started this concert that's incredible called the Bridge Benefit School Concert, right? Right, right? So the Bridge School was a school his wife started for their son, Ben, who had severe epilepsy and was in a wheelchair and they used these digital ways they could communicate and it was amazing, right? They created a whole specialized school and Neil's concerts helped fund it. So he was doing that when I moved here and I went to see those. And I was like, wow, this guy's just amazing. I think the first couple of years I saw Simon and Garfunkel, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. They were all acoustic, like locally. So I became a big fan, saw a lot of his shows. And then when Kurt dies, I didn't know that much about this album. I had listened to it. I had grown up, you know, liking Neil. In the 70s, I had heard Old Man, The Heart of Gold. And then I knew about Trans and how he fucked David Geffen over. And I knew, like you, knew this notes about you. And then in 1989, I saw him live wearing the communist hat doing Rockin' in the Free World. And he said, this is for the protest Tiananmen Square standing in front of the tanks and that was a moment for me in 1999 when I was very susceptible to going to protests and as a youngster being involved in political movements and so I latched on to Neil as somebody who his authenticity and the lines in his face showing the words he spoke he had lived and the understanding I gained an immense respect for and then things just fell by the wayside like I started comparing everybody to him you know like oh that's all just corporate bullshit or somebody wrote that for that person or so I had this respect for him and then I, it, it just got bigger and bigger but I then stopped and looked back at this album and in context historically if we can look back at this now which I'm doing with you is yes he's the godfather of grudge yes he is the conduit to punk and new wave in many ways yes has a protest song in every decade that resonates with every generation and so this album was before there was unplugged in the 90s so only Bob Dylan had gone acoustic and electric. This album has acoustic and electric. It's showing you Neil's putting aside who he was as that hippie acoustic guy for a year and decade, and now I'm moving on. And from this moment of this album and what happens afterwards, he goes into trans, the electronic stuff. He does shopping pinks. He does the blue notes. He just keeps reinventing. And this is one of these moments that separates after 10 years the rest of his career. It's almost like, though, this is the point where Neil decided, right, this is what Crazy Horse is going to be for, because you mentioned before, tonight's the night, there's Crazy Horse there, and on Zuma, there's Crazy Horse, and everybody knows this is nowhere, but... 
from this point on, this is what Crazy Horse sounded like. This is the sound of Crazy Horse on Reactor. This is the sound of Crazy Horse on Sleeps with Angels. It's the sound, yes. especially on Ragged Glory. And the new song that he's just put out, Shut It Down. That Crazy Horse was invented with that Rust Never Sleeps live Rust period in my mind anyway because the, the sound before they were never refined they're not that sort of band but they had uh, I don't know I don't want to use the word nuance because that sounds like a, a put down of what they became it's not meant to be but they didn't sound this heavy grungy punky sort of band raw I guess, yeah raw is a good mm, word yes, right yeah exactly yeah, yeah 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 and that's you know the weld and art you just mentioned all those things that 20 years later you know became a still a core that Neil could go back to. Mm-hmm. So Neil could go off and play acoustic and do Freedom. He could do Rock on the Freeway. He could play with Emmy Lou Harris. He could do a tour with Booker T and the MGs in the 90s, right? But then he always had Crazy Horse as that raw energy that he always needed to keep him going, even to today. Still there for him to tap into. Right. This album, again, you look back at it, he had the tour, it's this wacky concept where there's Jawas that come out with yes. giant and there's a giant tuning fork and all through the show there's quotes from Woodstock like don't take the acid he takes all these quotes and he like puts them as PSAs to the audience so he's taking Star Wars the Sex Pistols Woodstock he's doing this in this time in 78 when people just weren't doing that you know so people are like what the hell is this you know still to this day there's still people who will go why the fuck did he do the Jawas in the Rust Never Sleeps or you know it's because he's Neil, before I, we get off this conversation and end this, uh, and I appreciate all the time and letting me just speak unbounded here, Morris, so I appreciate that. It just goes on and on. I've mentioned half of the things that make Neil Young the incredible artist that he is. I'm going to mention just a few more things before, while well, I can. Live Aid, he was there. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I mentioned Buffalo Springfield briefly. Uh, his two-time inductee to Hall of Fame. He should be three-time. He's in for Buffalo Springfield and for Neil Young, but he's not in for CSNY, which is a travesty, by the way. You had the bridge school benefits I mentioned, but he also does farming. So in America, over the last 25 years, Neil created a nonprofit that John Cougar, Mellencamp, Willie Nelson, Dave Matthews Band, the Jim James, My Morning Jacket, everyone participates in. That's called farming. And that's him. He had an album called The Monsanto Years. He spent tens of millions of his own dollars going to court on the daily to help people, farmers, who were fighting against a giant agricultural chemical company in America called Monsanto. And he recorded an album about it, okay? He created the Pono. It failed, but he did it, okay? <laughs> Listen, right. no other right, but he did it. He has worked with Jim Jarmusch, Johnny Depp, Dead Man, the number of albums. He created an album about electric cars. He has a band with Willie Nelson's son, Lucas Nelson. He has every one of his songs is available now. And I'm going to end this by saying everyone go to neilyoungarchives.com. The greatest $19 you will ever spend as a music fan is to subscribe to his archives for a year. You get his entire 50-year catalog, including every lyric written on napkins and the notes he originally did that you can look at in HD, lossless CD quality for 19 bucks a year. You can stream it all in HD. It's the only place you can stream an artist's music in HD right now, and he's offering it to all of his fans and catalogs. Neil is next to my heart, and I love the opportunity to come onto your show and just be uh, evangelical about him. Well, I'm truly grateful. <laughs> 
or that you wanted to be evangelical about, Neil. I think we're going to have to do a separate show. I've been thinking about this. As you know, I'd love to do maybe a couple of episodes devoted to great bootlegs. There was a, a terrific book written by a fellow called Clinton Halen about the history of bootlegs. And like you, I collected bootlegs for a time, you know, did a lot of CD trading and the like. And I'd love to hear your take on a couple of essential Neil bootlegs. I've got a couple of thoughts myself, but I'd love to hear your take. So we'll do a separate show just to talk about Neil bootlegs. Yes. In 2004, I went to this place with 2,000 people for a Neil Young benefit. I had no idea what I was in for. I just wanted to pay Neil. I go to anything he did, ever, always in <laughs> my area. And I'm sitting there and out comes this girl. She's about five foot two. And this is 2004. She rolls out a giant harp and she sits down and she starts to play these poly Appalachian rhythms on a harp. And I'm going, what the hell is this? And then this voice comes out of her and it takes me to just a whole nother place. And for 45 minutes, I was transfixed to an artist I'd never heard, which is Joanna Newsom. Uh, I had a feeling you were going to go there. You know, and I want to mention that I told you a little bit about her. She's married to Andy Samberg here. She's a bit of an underground phenomenon in America, but Neil has also done that for me through many, many years. He's introduced me to new music, which you do often, Morris, as well on our Slack and on your Facebook. So I appreciate you always doing that as well, because that's the best gift that since record stores are gone and trading tapes doesn't happen anymore the music discovery thing of people you know trust and love with their music taste is great yes so thanks well thank you so much peter for your time i love that we've opened up the show with someone so passionate i mean neil would ask are you passionate and you definitely would say shit yeah. dude you had to bring that up you had to bring up the <laughs> You, you had to bring say, up his worst album. You did say you respect him for just being different. And like it or not, <laughs> land on water, life, are you passionate? That question had to be brought out. Well, if you have 50 albums, you're going to have a few stinkers, okay? I'll, I'll yeah, give you that. Exactly. But listen, even his stinkers smell better than a lot of people's good stuff. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'll, I'll go along with that. All right. We'll be back in a moment with the next guest. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 133. Welcome back. We're continuing on with our Pantheon podcasters love of live albums. I put out the call and so many podcasters responded. So I'm thrilled to have on the other end of a Skype connection, the host of a fantastic podcast called The Band, A History, hosted by Ty Listen. Welcome to the podcast, Ty. Thank you for having me. Uh, I saw you put out the call, and in these uncertain times, I know it's difficult to put episodes together, and I jumped at the opportunity. I love your show, and I'm glad to be on. Thank you so much. You know what? Actually, I sort of think that these times are probably made for us because we speak over yeah. Skype. We do these things remotely. I think podcasting is one of the few, I don't know if you want to call it industries, but certainly one of the few activities that's had no effect at all. And if people are home, they should be listening to podcasts. Certainly. Obviously, I, I'm continuing to work on mine, but I've seen a lot of great new podcasts come up and a lot of old podcasts that have been around for a while really hit amazing strides with guests and just content. And it's great. Mm. People need things to do right now. And what better than a podcast? Exactly. 
So your podcast is The Band, A History. Might I presume that you're going to be talking about a band live album? Uh, you are 100% correct. Uh, <laughs> yes, I've hosted The Band, A History for about a year and a half-ish now. Obviously, I love the band. They, they mean a lot to me as a fellow Canadian. And yes, the album that I would love to talk about today is their 1972 live album, their first live album, Rock of Ages. You can walk on the water down in the sand And you can fly off a mountain top if anybody can which is kind of the conclusion of the first half of their career as the band. Previously, they had hit their stride with their first two albums, which are in a lot of people's pantheons, which is music from Big Pink and their self-titled album, The Band, which is fondly known as the Brown Album, as well as their next albums, which necessarily weren't as critically acclaimed, but have some great material in Stage Fright and Cahoots. And Rock of Ages is kind of the culmination of many years together and a triumph for them as a group before they ventured off into uncharted territory for the latter half of the 70s. On the episode that you did recently about Rock of Ages, you mentioned something that one of my friends had gone and said, it always seems to me that there's a team Rock of Ages and a team Last Waltz. My friend Pat Monahan a few years ago said to me, oh, Rock of Ages, definitely the far superior album. And you mentioned that on your podcast as well, that there are some people who prefer one over the other. Now, why do you think that would be? You know, it's different for multiple people. Personally, I never gave a thought to it. I always thought The Last Waltz was a superior album, but as time went on, that opinion kind of became mute, and I can get into that, but one of the things that I think makes Rock of Ages maybe a fresher album for a lot of individuals is this was the band at a probably healthier point in time in terms of their relationships with each other, in terms of their relationship with music and in terms of a lot of the things that were going on not revolving around music uh, like their drug habits or their relationships with their families and things like that there is a tenacity to the music there is a freshness to a lot of it and it's not as grandiose it is I think a little bit more narrow and guided and it's their first time experimenting they're a band that can get away with experimenting by that I mean this is the first time you have an extensive horn collection A lot of them would play horns on the album and producer John Simon would play horns a lot, but we have a fully built out horn section and we have only really one guest, which is Dylan, whose tracks aren't necessarily released on the original version of the album, but on the reissue and at the concert, Dylan came out at the end of the evening and performed four numbers with them. There was 
something about that moment. Dylan obviously didn't play a lot live during that period. It's still very a mysterious figure. He came out and surprised everybody on New Year's Eve and finished it off with his old backing band. So I think there was something there. They really showed the world some songs, too, that they hadn't really shown them before, which became staples like Don't Do It, which was a Marvin Gaye mm. song. I love Marvin Gaye, don't get me wrong, but I think the band did something with it that hadn't been done before. It kind of became their song. So there was a couple moments like that that for a lot of people make Rock of Ages the superior album. Sometimes first is best. I don't know. There's no room for a genetic method on the last waltz. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> and for those who haven't heard it, it's like about five or six minutes of Garth Hudson noodling on the organ. And it's very 1970s. <laughs> Last Waltz was pretty much special guests do their song, boom. Band do their song, boom. The Last Waltz album was made for the film first, necessarily the music first. With that, I think there is a difference there. I think they had a lot more issues with the recording of the audio at The Last Waltz. There was extensive redubbing afterwards. Let me ask you, because is yeah. there much overdubbing on Rock of Ages? Because I know that was a big 1970s thing. There was always talk that there were very few, if any, live albums that were 100% live. Not to my knowledge was there a lot, though this is presented as an album that was recorded in its entirety on New Year's Eve, but the performances are actually a collection of performances from their multiple shows at the Academy of Music in New York City. They played three shows in a row starting on the 29th of December. So, for example, on the original issuing of the album Don't Do It is from the 29th, whereas W.S. Walcott Medicine Show, which finishes off that first side, is from the 31st. So you have a collection of different days there, but not, to my knowledge, any dubbing, or at least not anything close to the extensive dubbing of The Last Waltz. I wanted to also ask, just prior to coming back to this album, where did your love affair of the band actually start? Wow, great question. I tell this story often. I actually didn't like the band when I first heard them. A staple of radio, at least here, and it's become their most known song, The Wait. that point in my life when I first heard it, I didn't like anything that sounded remotely influenced by country music. Something that was a prejudice of mine that I don't know why I held. And it's ironic because now I prefer country music. I listen to a lot of country music, Willie Nelson, George Jones, etc. And it's not even country music. It just Levon Helm has a Southern accent. So I didn't like that song, but I'm a film fan. I studied film at school, obviously knew who Martin Scorsese was. I had known about The Last Waltz. I had seen clips from it, but I had never watched it. So those two things kind of told me about the band. But it wasn't till later, my fiance and I went to her local folk festival in town in a small town about an hour and a half outside of Toronto and Garth Hudson who is one of the remaining surviving members of the band played he headlined it and I was like all right let's go let's go check it out we did and I was blown away and listen Garth Hudson was phenomenal
phenomenal. Obviously very old at that point, but amazing. It's like the organs and the pianos are an extension of his body. Yes. But we're not even getting the full band experience. We're not even getting a Rick Danko singing or a Richard Manuel or a Lee Von Helm or a Robbie Robertson shredding guitar. But I was now so interested in their music. And from that moment, I became more and more interested. And over the years, I had, had made a short talk about Richard Manuel. I'd been on a committee that named a scholarship after Richard Manuel that's still in effect for music students at a local university. A couple other things, but from that moment I've seen Garth Hudson live, I was obsessed. That's a very good reason to get into the band. Yeah, an absolutely phenomenal musician who, as I understand it, they hired him and he said, right, well, okay, but only if you can pay me extra and I'll give you uh, music lessons because I don't think you're up to scratch. That's correct. An extra $10 a week from the Hawks collectively to give music lessons as well as a Lowry organ which I believe at the time and we're talking about the mid 60s was still around $6,000 to buy one of those guys so Garth Hudson was even a steep price back then so uh, yeah they must have really liked him to bring him into the fold. And it's just amazing to sort of think that the band was two bands. I mean, the, you know, the Hawks having those first eight years or so that they were mm-hmm. just the Hawks and then the next eight years that they were the band. And I don't know exactly whether you'd say it was a reinvention or something, but essentially it was a very long career, but as two bands. And Yeah. And the the crux there is Dylan, I think. Obviously, when they were playing as the Hawks with Ronnie Hawkins, Ronnie Hawkins was one of the purveyors and original guys of the rockabilly movement, along with the Elvis Presleys and stuff. Obviously not reaching that fame level, but he was during that era and was around those guys. And the band played a lot of R&B and rockabilly and things like that. When they toured with Dylan, I think that really opened the door for songwriting. They got to see up close firsthand what a songwriter was like. And that rubbed off on Robbie and Richard, then obviously started writing a lot more music together, separately and with Dylan, as you can see on the first few albums. That blending of, you know, none of them are really folk fans. They're quoted as saying we weren't really into the folk movement, but you can see some of that obviously in the music that they went to create with the band. So the combination of the early career becoming musicians and grinding it out on the road taught them so much about their craft. Playing with Dylan taught them about the industry and about songwriting. Mm. So by the time they were finally ready to actually put an album together, it kind of was the culmination of that eight years, nine years. I remember once reading an article about the band and they were saying that it was the most audacious thing that a band could do to put out an album cover like for the Brown album, where it shows these five guys who look like they live in some small mountain town out in the middle of nowhere in the yeah. height of psychedelia where you know, the, the thing was everyone's listening to all these spaced out trippy sort of records and here's a band putting out albums with songs like the night they drove old dixie down yeah, they're talking mm-hmm. about old american history i think it was a back to basics approach the band definitely tries to build a myth around themselves a little bit but they say they stumble upon it i think there's truth to that they definitely wanted to strip it back to basics They wanted to take all of the things that they enjoyed collectively as a group because we have an eclectic group of music listeners here. We have people in the band that loved R&B and soul. We have people like Garth Hudson that come from a classical and jazz background. We have Robbie Robertson, who is definitely more of a rocker. And you put that together and you strip it back and that's where you get your roots music from. But I think there was also a rebellious streak in them. They saw what was going on. They didn't really like it. They saw the acid rock. They saw the psychedelic type of music. That 
wasn't their style. So they're like, let's kind of do the opposite. And they weren't connecting with a lot of the, our, their peers of the day. I know there's a lot of famous quotes, especially from Levon, talking about a lot of people were rebelling and saying that they hated their parents and that they didn't care about family. And we cared about our family and we cared about our roots and where we came from. And this is our love letter to that. That made them kind of stick out in a refreshing way that led to a lot of upheaval in the industry. Well, it might have not been commercially going triple platinum, it was definitely making the most commercially successful artists of the time rethink from your Claptons to your Beatles to your Rolling Stones. All of them had a shift in their music after. And a lot of them have come out and said, you know, it was really those bands first two albums there in the late 60s where we really thought, well, maybe we're going a little too far here and let's get back to the things that we really enjoyed when we first got into music. Coming back to Rock of Ages, so what are your favorite cuts on the album? Wow, great question. There's a few. I think Don't Do It obviously is one of the best cuts on the album. It is the first song. Baby, don't you do it. LP, there is a rawness to it that Levon really brings to it. It's a bit sexy too, you know. Oh, very. There's just a there's a way that Levon delivers it that in a lot of R&B and soul music you get that sexiness often, but there's a little bit more edginess to it that I think is very interesting that really elevates it. I think that Across the Great Divide is another excellent one that people don't think about often. It's the opening track of the band's second album, sung by Richard Manuel, who probably was one of the best singers of that era. And he has his voice in full effect here, soaring to new levels. It's a fun song. And I really think that another tune like Chest Fever is really great. It makes sense because, like you were saying earlier, the Jack method, Garth played for seven minutes and 48 seconds, I believe. <laughs> and it was it was a jam to try to get to that mark where they could basically be like, Happy New Year, and nice. then go right into chest fever after. I think there's something super special about that. You can hear it in the crowd. You can hear it to the guys on stage. There's a giddiness. And then you go into I Don't Want to Hang Up My Rock and Roll Shoes, which is a cover which, again, Levon kind of ends that album like he starts, and it's just a pure, romping rock tune that's really, really good. Do you know where Baby Don't You Do It actually sort of figured into the set? I mean, I know it's the first track on the album, but in So The Last Waltz, it opens up the film in Mm. best noir film tradition where we start the film off with the aftermath of the murder and then go back to... (laughs) 
what led to that murder, so for instance. Mm-hmm. But in The Last Waltz, it's the very last thing that the band plays at Fillmore West, but it opens up the film, and it's such a perfect way to open up the film. So I'm wondering, in the Rock of Ages era, where they're playing at the New York Academy, was mm-hmm. that how they opened up the shows? From my understanding here, they did actually open the show with it. It was first in the set list. Obviously, you're very correct, and it's an interesting how they kind of edit that film together in, in The Last Waltz, where it's the last first. Uh, I think that's very interesting. And you're right about the noir connection. That's very interesting. But I think ultimately the band gravitated toward this song because they could never really get it down in the studio. There wasn't a way that they ever recorded it where they're like, this is anywhere close to how we do it live. It's one of those songs. A lot of bands have those types of songs. And the band wasn't pretentious when it came to paying respects and knowing what was good music. They grew up listening to a lot of these Motown records. This song, like many others, was something that they really loved listening to and they loved to play it. And it was a kind of a callback to where they started. They were never afraid to call back to where they started. And we got an album out of that not that long after Rock of Ages and Moondog Matinee. But there is a very interesting history with that song and it means a lot to the band and to the band fans now which is super fun i gotta say that having alan toussaint come and arrange the horns i won't spoil the story here i encourage my listeners to go and listen to all of the band of history podcast but there's a particularly fascinating story about all that alan toussaint had to do a dedicated man to his craft in terms of writing the horn arrangements for this set of shows but i just sort of think that alan toussaint and the band were a perfect match. He brings out something of a New Orleans flavor with mm-hmm. horn arrangements to the band. He transforms them as you know a band from Canada, notwithstanding mm-hmm. Levon, but he transforms them from there to being a band from New Orleans. They really do sound like one. Yeah, and I think it was a bit of a gamble. Yeah, again, thank you for pushing the podcast there. There is some interesting stories there around that. But yeah, he represented again like the Motown guys did. The band loved the New Orleans sound and you get that again on Moondog Matinee. You get a lot of those covers from that area. But there was a fear there too. They were concerned that by adding a horn section live, it might come across to jazz rocky, but they were able to pull it together. And it helps that they have some of the best horn players of all time and Howard Johnson and Snooky Young and Joe Farrell and J.D. Perrin and things like that. Like they had some of the best horn players. And collectively, you're right, there is an energy that really comes by adding that it almost is like the band wouldn't be the band without an amazing horn section to go along with it it just really elevates those songs and those arrangements from alan toussaint it just really impacted it in such a great way right i mean look, it's one thing to have garth hudson do his sax solo and it makes no difference Mm-hmm. Uh, but a horn section, a fantastic horn section, just really can elevate an already great band. And one thing that we sort of haven't mentioned yet is not just that they were great players, but they were all great multi-instrumentalists. I love mm-hmm. looking at the album cover of Rock of Ages and seeing Richard Manuel on the drum kit and Levon Helm on the mandolin. They're vocals. They weren't just great instrumentalists. I mean, you've already gone and mentioned the beauty of Richard Manuel's voice, but... Mm-hmm. Levon Helm is wonderful and Rick Danko what a voice three of them 
How many bands have three great singers like that? Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. The, the multi-instrumental uh, nature of it. Some of it was out of necessity. When Levon left the Dylan tour because he wasn't enjoying it, Richard was kind of put into that position of playing the drums afterwards when they were cutting demos. He kind of took up the kit and in that time became a pretty good drummer. And he carried that over for the rest of the band's career. He often played drums just as much as Levon. And Levon was so happy. He was like, he's quoted as saying, Richard Manuel is my favorite drummer of all time. He has a wow. loose swinging style. He plays with his left hand. So as you get with a lot of those lefties like Ringo, you kind of get a little bit of a drag on that beat. Yeah. So it, it's a very interesting loose style. You have Levon who also plays mandolin. Rick plays fiddle. Obviously, Garth can play anything. Um, <laughs> and you get that kind of musical chairs that makes it super interesting. And you're right about the singing. I think a lot of harmony singing during that period was getting these perfect triple harmonies and that serves its purpose and i like it you know the beatles obviously are some of the best and crosby stills nash and young are some of the best but there is an imperfection about these three together they take that from the staple singers who we are introduced to in the last waltz as well but sometimes you have this lateness to the harmony sometimes it's not perfect and that's what makes it interesting and you have three distinctly different singers who you wouldn't necessarily think would sound great together Rick can go for that tenor. He's a very crisp, high tenor. Richard Emanuel can do anything. He can go on that low baritone. He can go to the crazy high falsetto like we see on Tears of Rage. And then you have Levon, who oftentimes would ride that low to mid, too. And together, collectively, you have this very interesting concoction. And that's what made them unique. I wanted to say thank you once again so much, Ty, for being a part of this i've really really enjoyed this discussion about the band it's unfathomable to me that in all the years i've been doing love that album that we've never covered a band album so this will probably open the door i might have to have you back to do a studio yeah. album like long form uh, certainly at, at some stage but once again huge thanks to you now if people want to be able to follow your activities how can they get in contact how can they listen to your podcast yeah yeah of course you can go find anything about the podcast i do about the band at the bandpodcast.com and you can find us on instagram at the instagram.com slash the band podcast we put a lot of great content out there historical content we put a lot of great photos out and tell stories um and on facebook and twitter as well at the band podcast we're all over the place i'm very happy to talk to anybody about the band or anything about that era of music so definitely drop me a line if you're in the neighborhood and find our podcast online somewhere and uh, i just want to thank you again for having me on the show it's been wonderful I love talking about the band with anybody because they're one of those groups that maybe not everybody's heard of, but once they hear them and check them out, they really like them. Back to Love That Album, episode 133, where we go album by album through the underbelly of Pantheon podcasters using research and trivia to locate the roots of their obsession with live records. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for talking to the hosts of the Highway Hi-Fi podcast about their favorite live albums. 
welcome Joe and Ryan to Love That Album. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. We are big fans of yours. Well, we have a mutual appreciation society here. I've been a huge fan of uh, Highway High Five podcast for what the last couple of years or something like that, and I've been putting your name out to everyone who will listen. And if they don't, then I smack them about. So, <laughs> so for the people who have not been convinced yet, please let the listeners know what is Highway High Five all about. Oh, wow. Well, what we do is we try to take a topic that we don't know a whole lot about. Usually it's fairly niche based and it's going to have something to do with generally a music or vinyl collecting over the past like hundred years. So we'll take a topic like the theremin and we'll just talk about it for an hour and a half we'll do a lot of research for a few weeks and then we'll come in and we will kind of do give everybody as much information as we possibly can for it and we play a few songs and before any of that starts we ask each other trivia questions just to make sure that we're still humble <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't work because you guys, more often than not, say, yeah, I think I got that worked out. Yeah, I think I got that worked out. I was a little bit worried that there was something of the uh, quiz show scandal going on down there. Oh, no, we, nope, we, nope. we purposely try to make each other look bad. It's um, <laughs> kind, yeah. kind of the whole gimmick. We share a lot of tastes, so we know a lot of the same things. I want to know, what album or albums have you chosen to talk about today on uh, Love That Album? What is a favorite live album of yours? When we first started talking about this, we both just immediately said we wanted to talk about The Velvet Underground 1969. And then we came up with, right after that, what is probably our favorite live album right now, I would say, if Ryan doesn't mind me speaking for him, it's Lou Reed's Take No Prisoners from 1978. Take No Prisoners, it is an interesting live record. So basically, Lou Reed had gone through most of the 70s. He'd had his ups and downs. He'd put out Metal Machine music, got kicked off of RCA, eventually got signed with Arista Records. And, you know, it was that late 70s era of the double live. Everybody wanted to put out a double live record. Frampton comes alive and all that nonsense. So I think Arista said, well, let's go ahead. Let's let Lou do a double live record. Rock and Roll Animal was a big seller. And so basically, he um, books five nights at Greenwich Village nightclub called The Bottom Line and records one of the craziest live sets you could ever imagine. He had a, a great band. They were more funky and soulful than most of his bands, but he couldn't get through a song. He would just start talking and ranting and making fun of people and yelling at the audience. And then he'd start singing for a second and then he would come back to rants. And it is just one of the the most bizarre, brilliant, and funny live albums ever. But the thing about it is, when he does get to songs, they're amazing. He's having fun. He's loose. It is an album, a live album, that I don't think has an equal as far as what it is. A lot of people say it's his comedy album. I don't know if I'd go that far. It has funny moments, but it's pure Lou. Lou Reed was always known as the big piss taker of 
rock and roll. If they say Dylan was the jester, but I don't know. I think Lou Reed was definitely the big stand-up comic. He's the mirror to his audience. Yeah, he is. It was sort of like that album, I think, is a little bit like if Don Rickles were the lead singer of the Velvet Underground. It's like the (laughs) best and worst of Lou Reed at exactly the same time. And they're just all mixed up in there. You can't even tell which is which sometimes. But it is also the single best version of the song Berlin ever performed. I'm sure it's it's beautiful. And then, like Ryan was saying, he attacks the audience while they're there. And it's wonderful, I think. I think it's abusive in a very delightful way for me. So how was it received at the time? Mixed to poor, for the most part, I think. Critics by that point had kind of gotten used to Lou and what he was all about. I think a lot of people saw that, you know, when you got to the music, it was great. But the other thing about the record is he really attacks critics. I mean, he goes at Robert Criscow. To be fair, don't we all want to take pot shots at Robert Criscow? Yes. I don't know what you're allowed to say on this show, if it matters. Anything you want. I've heard some things on your show, so I assume. But he calls Robert Criscow a toe fucker, which is, I don't even know what that is. (laughs) But it's really wonderful. Critics. What is Robert Criscow doing today? You know, is he a toe fucker? <laughs> He's talking about how he worked on Street Hassle, which is the album that came out before, and Chris Gow gave it a B minus or whatever. And he is not happy about it. And this is all in the middle of Walk on the Wild Side, which is 16 minutes long, but he doesn't really get to the chorus till probably, what, eight or nine minutes in, maybe 10 minutes. He's going to talk about how he ended up writing it, but then he gets sidetracked. And then he'll come back and then he'll, he'll say, oh yeah, I was going to talk about how I wrote this. And he talks about how he doesn't want to play it. And then he talks about, we know it's your favorite. Aren't they all your favorites? It's just such an unadulterated Lou. It's great. But then he'll go off on different things. He goes off on Patti Smith. But then he'll also bring people up. Bruce Springsteen's in the audience. He gives Bruce a nod. It's a record that it's really, truly hard to explain the whole listening experience. The other funny thing, and I'll let Joe talk about it, is it's kind of a pioneering live record in the sound. Yeah, they used something called, or he used, binaural sound. The three of his records at that time, it was Take No Prisoner, Street Hassle, which came out right before this. That's what he was touring for. And then the bells were all recorded in this binaural sound, which these two guys, mostly one guy, but it was Manfred and his brother Wolfgang Schunk in Germany. They came up with this. They worked on this idea that was basically called, I don't know my German very well, but it was Kunskopf Stereophony. Perfect. It's really just generally called Dummy Head, where they take a mannequin and they put really, really nice microphones into the mannequin's ears and they put the mannequin out in the audience. And that's how they record it. So you feel like you're getting sound as if you're actually there. And it works really well on headphones. Like if you put this album on and you put your headphones on, it sounds absolutely wonderful. And there's a bit at the beginning where Lou Reed comes out and he lights a cigarette and you can hear when he strikes the match, you can hear the match like light all around you. (laughs) 
It's like 360 degree sounds is what some people call it as well. It's really interesting. It does not work on speakers, but it works on headphones. I don't think Lou was really thinking about that. If it's on speakers, you have to kind of be in the exact spot where the mannequin head was or the dummy head was to get it to sound perfect. Otherwise, it sounds kind of muddled. But with headphones, it's really amazing. It's about as audiophile as sound can be as long as you have the headphones on. And nobody else in rock was doing that. I think Can had one of their records flow motion, but I don't remember when that came out. I think it was after that. Lou was emphatic about it. He took the tapes with him to Germany to Manfred Schunk's studio, which was in this little village, and just worked there for two months, I think, on it. Just him and one of the guys in his band and came up with Take No Prisoners. They did the same thing with Street Hassle, where it was originally mastered and engineered and ready to go, and somebody played it for Lou, and he said, that's not what I want, and he just thought it was terrible, and then he redid it in that binaural sound, and it just sounded completely different. It's very interesting that he was kind of ahead of the curve in something, or at least experimenting with something that other people hadn't really done anything with yet. I mean, he was always sort of doing that with music as well as sound, until, of course, I think New York, where he said, right, I'm just going to strip this back to bass drums and a couple of guitars you can't do any better than that but then of course later on he's going and doing albums like the raven and magic and loss and songs for drella which uh a million miles away from new york mm-hmm. so it was just just sounds like a restless soul just someone who always was doing something different this is what i believe i want to do now Yeah, I think whether he was on meth or speed or not, his brain would have been moving at a million miles an hour, no matter what. Well, and the funny thing is he sets up this technology, spends so much time on doing this, and it's a record that is just not going to sell. I think certainly not what Arista wanted. And they had to slap a sticker on it that said this album is offensive. They do that with every Billy Joel record, too, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have to confess, guys, I was waiting for you to say, right, that your album of choice was going to be Songs from the Attic. So uh, I was very <laughs> disappointed you didn't pick that. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to slip one in there since we've discussed that in the past. I don't know where Joe's hatred of Billy Joe kind of stems from, but it's kind of spilled over on me. Let's go back to Lou Reed. Maybe Joe can help me kind of explain how a song goes. Because if you've never heard this record, you're thinking a live album is an artist gets up on stage and he plays the songs and he may talk about it. It may be sort of like an unplugged thing where they kind of talk about the song or tell a joke or some funny anecdote. But it's really you have to sort of unhinge your mind around what a live record should be to kind of experience this. And when I first heard it, somebody told me, like, well, this is the birth of punk. This record is the birth of punk. Never mind that it was 78, you know, whatever. It's clearly not the birth of punk. In fact, I think it's the music itself is like the opposite of punk. It's very refined. It's a crack band who's really good. They have to be good because they are following a man who has no concept of where the song is going and what what they're doing. I mean, he's, he's making up somebody yell something at him. He's going to yell back. And he just kind of, it's the stream of consciousness for a while there on some of it. So 
it's a really truly kind of a fun experience there are some songs that are just played pretty straight and like joe said they're amazing they're great but they're song songs that it's like he's sabotaging his own song it's very hard to explain as someone who's not heard that particular album what is the instrumentation on this album is he working with just a standard sort of rhythm section guitar piano are there strings on this are there horns what's the instrumentation on this one it's your pretty standard full rock band. Uh, I assume Lou's playing guitar, but I'm not positive. There's, you know, guitar, bass, drums. There's a keyboardist, and I think, I forget his name, but he's kind of the leader of the band. And then he's even got two backup singers. So it's a full rock band setup, and they're good. And Lou wanted something a little bit more R&B, a little bit more soulful. He'd been playing with the glam rock stuff. And then I think when he hit Coney Island Baby, is it Coney Island Baby that was right after Metal Machine Music? Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think so. When he hit Coney Island Baby, he wanted a little bit more of a, like a looser, soulful band. And he just kind of kept touring with them. And apparently he loved them. At first, nobody thought this would work. They thought he needed more like a punk band, something with high energy, maybe a little less precise. But they work great with him. They, they had to. Was, they have to keep up with him. Something triggers him to talk about Barbra Streisand. Don't you hate it, those Academy Awards, man? And I said, it's fucking Barbra Streisand. She's like, I want to thank all those little people. There's too many little people, I can't get their names. Fuck her and the little people. Don't you hate fucking Barbara Streisand, man? She's up on the, the stage. I, go, I want to thank all the little people. I want to thank all the big people. Fuck the little people. Fuck the big people. I want middle people. People from Wyoming. You ever meet somebody from Wyoming? Not me. And I mean, it sounds like I'm a madman just saying that, but that's almost word for word what he says in the middle of Sweet Jane. <laughs> and the band's just grooving along. It's the strangest thing. But then once he decides to get back to singing, they're right there, ready to kick it in. And they're great. The band is phenomenal. Yeah, they've been playing with him for a while they had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen they knew from night to night that they just needed to be prepared a lot of it is like a an incredibly body version of vh1 storytellers he talks a lot for a long time and then he'll break into the song sometimes and finish it and when he does that it's wonderful but the stories he tells beforehand or the rants he has beforehand sometimes a manifesto maybe mm-hmm. he does a really really fun job and it's just all kind of vomiting out of his mouth he has, doesn't seem like he has any control over it and it's perfect. Before we head out, any final thoughts about Take No Prisoners? And should the casual Lou Reed fan search this out? Everyone should. Okay. Even if you don't like Lou Reed, you should do it. Play, play it in an <laughs> elevator. Play it somewhere where you're trapped. <laughs> play it in front that's of your my, kids. Well, uh, that's a funny story. My daughter, she's 10. She was in her room with her headphones on, and she was painting or doing homework. I was washing the dishes, so I had it on the, the stereo. And... <laughs> She comes out, and it's right at this part where he's talking about it's an electric fireplace. You plug it in, and then he talks about it's a make-believe fire. Ooh, it's a make-believe love. And write that down, Michael. That's an album title. He says, fuck it, Mike, forget it. And right as he says, fuck it, Mike, forget it, she walks out, and she looks at me. And she's used to me playing inappropriate music. But she looks at me, and she says, Dad, I think you probably need to turn this off. (laughs) Your daughter. (laughs) 
Yeah. It had nothing yeah. to do with the swearing, though. She just hates Lou Reed. <laughs> she likes Lou Reed, okay. Put that theory to the test. Play a Derek and Clive album while she's walking around the house. See what she's doing. <laughs> she's heard a lot of music that 10-year-old girls probably are not big fans of. She she humors me. As long as I let her play her music sometimes. So. Okay, so she's a big Billy Joel fan? We... I don't think she's she's broken into my Billy Joel collection yet. The okay. one I keep in the attic. I know that we don't have any time, but we the other albums that we kind of are backups. I don't know mm. if they were any better. Was like Elvis at Aloha from Hawaii and Velvet Underground 1969. Ryan, what were the? Oh, the I wanna, two? We talked about Jonathan Richman uh, and the Modern Lovers live at Long Branch. Yeah, there's different versions of it. There's the one that's Precise Modern Lovers Order, which is a amazing record that every person in the world should at least seek out that live version of Plea for Tenderness because it's one of the greatest rock songs ever it's like jonathan richman being a soul singer with a punk band behind him it's great and then the we'll bonnie the, prince billy yeah with the picket line um, mm-hmm. which is kind of like his bluegrass version of his songs there were probably three or four songs ohio or magnolia electric company ones too with jason molina he does he had some really good live ones too but we selected take no prisoners yep well you had plenty to say about that and so at <laughs> this point i'd just like to sort of one final thing just wanted to ask you guys to so make mention how can people find you we are on well we have twitter and instagram and our handle on both of those is highway hi-fi pod we have a facebook page and we have an email address we'd love it if somebody if anybody would email us anything they anything they want to know it's highway hi-fi podcast at gmail.com we love getting email if people have any requests for topics usually the topics we've had as i mentioned are fairly obscure kinds of items stuff like records for plants that's the episode when I'm telling people you need to hear these guys. That's the one I tell them about records of plants because <laughs> because it's the topic that I think what these guys yeah, tackle it, topics no one else does. One about Waffle right. House records. I, lo- I love Waffle House records. Is Waffle House in Australia? Uh, not that I'm aware of. We had a chain oh. for a while, which I think is now down to one store called the Pancake Parlor. Oh well. Next time you, you make it to Georgia, I'll, um, I'll buy you an all-star special. Um, <laughs> you get, you've got to experience Waffle House. Weird stuff like that, Leonard Nimoy's records, you know, stuff that probably only a few people really, really are into. But I think a lot of people would find a lot of fun like we do once they start researching. Like I said, most, or like Joe said, most of the stuff we don't know a lot about when we start, we just kind of know faintly of it. And then we just get more and more obsessed with it. And then, you know, you end up playing records to your plants to see if they grow. So. <laughs> well, I know it worked. Damn, <laughs> damn your accusation of pseudoscience. It really works. Depends okay. if you play in Billy Joel or not. Ah, uh, there you go again. Oh, hang on. No, this is Dolly Parton. All right. Anyway, um, <laughs> we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to episode 133 of Love That Album. First thing they see allows them the right to be. They go ahead and they follow it. What else do you want? You know what it's called? Bad luck.
you heard earlier on in the show from one of the two heads of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and now I'm speaking to one of the other heads of the Pantheon Podcast Network, Mr. Christian Swain. I have the big head and the bald head, by the way. Oh, it's nice and shiny. I can see it from here. <laughs> yes, yes. He of deeper digs in rock, he of rock and roll archaeology, and he of yeah, rock and roll librarian you. fame. Yes, uh, yes. So you, it could be said you host 10% of the shows on the Pantheon Podcast <laughs> Network. No, no, no. At one time, yes, probably 10% or more of the shows. I, I, well, obviously, at the beginning, 100%, and then it became <laughs> 50%, and then uh, 25 I, I, I think I'm far less than 10% now. I mean, we do have 35 shows, so uh, of which I host two and a half of them. I only take half credit, because really, the Rock and Roll Librarian is about Shelley Sorensen, not me. Yay, Shelley. So, welcome to Love That Album. I'm very excited to be here. It's, uh, we've been having a good time. I've already recorded with a few of uh, our other colleagues in the network. The whole purpose, as you're well aware, is to talk about favorite live albums. Oh, I thought albums. it was favorite life albums. I had prepared a whole list of life albums. That, I thought you were going to talk you about know, are, life, the Neil Young album, Life. Uh, well, is that what the, the homework assignment was? Yes, Because I'm yes, not very good at that. So, uh. <laughs> live, as in people standing yes, on a stage. Yes, live. An interesting part of rock and roll history usually meant to be put out when you got nothing else. Like this episode of this podcast. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, sometimes it to fulfill a contract. But there have been some amazing life albums over the uh, the decades in rock and roll, regardless of why they were made. It's nice to put those on, drop the needle, and try to put yourself back in the concert environment. So your pick for this episode, it doesn't have to be a favorite. It can be just one that you really love or one that you think isn't getting enough attention here in 2020? I think I, I might go with, it, it is a favorite. It probably was a big favorite of mine at the time. It, it comes out in 1972. I probably came to it in about 74, I would say. Maybe maybe 75, somewhere around there, beginning of high school. It may be the largest live album of its time when you actually had albums because it is a triple album. That was a dangerous prospect even in those days. My understanding is that it delayed well actually it was the artwork to do a triple album that delayed its release by about four or five months and the band you've picked they were not known for doing casual artwork on their album cover. no not known for doing casual or look uh not known for short songs in fact i believe one site is one song they did that more than once Oh, yes. And of course, we are talking about the progressive rock band, Yes, and the live album, 1972's Yes Songs. Have 
have you seen the film? Because I have. Oh yes, I've I've seen the film. Yeah, yeah, many times. Yeah. Well, so just let's digress just a little bit and talk about your love of Yes. So was Yes songs your introduction to them as a band? Was it like, okay, I know something. I've heard a lot about this band. A live album is a good introduction if it's not a best of. Was that your entry point into Yes? No, no. Actually, I have a very interesting entry into Yes, and I'll I'll tell you about that in a second. But I I do want to preface it by saying that, as you know, I, I love all kinds of music. And literally, I can go to a Yes show one night and go and see Fear or Black Flag the next night. And then Metallica the night after that. Or Jazz Rock. I just love it all. But I got to say that Yes probably is the music that I would call my own first. I had an older brother. I had an aunt that uh, had given me music prior. A lot of 45s, a lot of Beatles type of stuff, uh, 60s stuff, early 70s stuff, mostly pop. I moved around a lot. My parents moved around a lot. And we'd moved to a a new town. I'd met a kid at school. Uh, He said, come over to the house. And uh, we're going through records. And he says, yeah, I don't like this one. Do you want it? It was this green album that just immediately spoke to me. And I was like, sure. Yeah, I'll I'll take it. I have no idea what it is. I go home. And you got to understand, I'm like a Lord of the Rings nut. That's my geekdom, if you will, is that whole Tolkien-esque sort of thing and so you know i take it home i have this new album i put it on and from the moment the birds start chirping i realized i'm in another world obviously that album was close to the edge and so that was my actual introduction to yes you know not long after that i did fork out the money for the three record yes songs live album you said that you were enveloped into this world of yes and let me ask you did you sort of go and follow up with any of uh, say rick wakeman's solo material about the same time let me think wow that's a great question i have to say that my favorite progressive rock outfit is not yes it's actually genesis okay um a very specific peter gabriel genesis so and to me the greatest album ever made is Lamb Lies Down the Body. I think the easy thing to answer this question is that I got Fragile, which was the obvious choice. I don't think I got some of the earlier albums until 8-Track, and that would have been, meant that I was driving, which meant I was 16, so that was a few years later. You know, Seconds Out was a big one, but I think that didn't come out till like 75, if I remember. And again, I have very eclectic tastes, so you know, I wasn't totally just listening to Yes 24-7 I was listening to a lot of other things as well. Sure, sure. Funny, I think when I was maybe about, I don't know, 10 or 11, and Rick Wakeman was touring presumably around the world with his Journey to the Centre of the Earth album. Yeah, I remember. And it was, I think, the Australian tour culminated with a live simulcast from Melbourne's My Music Bowl. And I'm pretty sure that that's available like as a DVD now. But I remember watching that and was transfixed. And my sister, who is not a rock person, but she watched that with me. And then when I wasn't buying Beatles records, I was buying Rick Wakeman (laughs) records. And this is all before I even realized that Yes existed. And then coming back to Yes songs, there's a whole section of it devoted to yeah, the solo uh, the six wives. And right, the right, six wives of Henry right. VIII. Mr. Rick Wakeman on keyboards.
Yeah, everybody gets a little bit of their solo on the album. You know, you have the fish, Schindelaria Prematuris, that Chris Squire was given. You have Mood for a Day, that Steve Howe is featured on. I'm not sure the drummers get anything other than uh, they're pretty much on throughout the entire album. Because remember, Bill Bruford was on a couple of the songs on Yes Songs. He had just left and was had been replaced by Alan White. Uh, and I think most of the songs are Alan White, but I think there are a few songs that are Bill Bruford there. Maybe Perpetual Change, I think, was the solo thing for John Anderson, which was one of the early songs that Yes did. So let me ask you this, how did you feel about Yes re-emerging in the 80s as more a pop band rather than what they've done? Did you just sort of think, well, this is progression, no, no, one, two, oh. did you just sort of think, this is a great album, doesn't matter, that's by a band that's called Yes. How did you feel going from, that they went from one thing to another thing? And because you're already going to mention Genesis and you had a favorite period of Genesis, but. Yeah, I had a very favorite period of Genesis, uh, although, you know, I continued to uh, enjoy Genesis until they got a little too poppy for me by the mid 80s but prior to that i mean duke and then there were three uh, i was still fans of that it, they begin to change a little bit i think abacab was the last one that i kind of said oh yeah they're really good but with yes you know it's funny i did see the drama tour with trevor horn and jeff downs from the buckles right uh, right right. i actually enjoyed that it was in the round that is kind of sacrilege if you're a yes fan i mean that's the album that you're supposed to not like trevor raven coming in and revitalizing them putting them into the uh, music scene of that mid-80s, I thought was great. I didn't care at uh, keeping these guys active and out there. You know, they were still amazing musicians across the board. I even saw Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe without Chris Squire, the one and only time. And in fact, I saw Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, and Howe after Tony Levin had gotten ill and Jeff Berlin had to step in and replace him for a few nights and was up there with charts playing Yes music. I wasn't a huge jazz or classical fan at the time and didn't realize that this is like a normal thing. To me, I was just like blown away that, oh my God, this guy's up there playing Yes music with charts. That's amazing. (laughs) I mean, he just learned this yesterday. So coming back to Yes songs, it's an album which I haven't heard in a while, but yeah, it was one that I absolutely really, really loved. Do you think that their chops were enough that this is an out-and-out live album, or are there stories about this having a lot of overdubs, which was a common 70s practice? Sure, it was a common 70s practice, and I'm sure some of this was done, but my understanding is that Eddie Offord, who was the producer on this and the engineer was their live mixer on tour, kept this pretty close. And uh, let's face it, if anybody could pull this off, these musicians could. I mean, they're that fucking good. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not sure they needed 
a lot of overdubs compared to some of the others, which was common at the time. And I don't believe that that was really done a lot. I mean, it is done with oh, about six different dates. So it is spread out a little bit more than some live albums, I think. But, you know, I think they were able to capture themselves in the moment just because they're that good. Of course. I mean, there are a lot of musicians who hear things that us mere mortals don't. And you think, well, what's your problem with that? That sounds terrific. Oh, no, 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 no. Because for a fraction of a millisecond there, I was supposed to play a triplet and I didn't. Yeah, there's a bit of improvisation, but not terribly a whole lot in there. They're still pretty much keeping with the songs. If anything, it's even more powerful than what you get off the record. My favorite Yes song of all time is Heart of the Sunrise. on the album that's the centerpiece on the album for me if you carry that off the rest of it is is cream on the cake yeah yeah again it's stellar playing they open with uh, Igor Stravinsky's Firebird Suite which they still to this day if it's yes opens with that as they walk on interestingly when this was recorded Igor Stravinsky had just passed away and so that was a big part of that them putting that in there that's their walk on music and then uh, to me Siberian Katru is like one of the greatest songs ever. As a musician myself, it's it's one of those songs that I just go, yeah, there's just no way that's ever going to happen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can but do what we can do. Um, yeah, yeah. There are certain other songs I go, oh, you know, okay. Oh, you know, I might be able to play parts of Mood for a Day. You could probably do I've Seen All Good People. You know, and then you get into things like Close to the Edge. And again, at the end, the, the last song on, the, on side six is Starship Trooper, three pieces, Life Sacred Disillusion, and of course, Worm, which anybody who's even picked up a guitar has probably played a thousand times. This is not related to Yes songs, but, you know, years later when I, I bought myself a copy of Modern Drummer magazine, and mm. they had an article about Alan White, and they had a transcription of Owner of a Lonely Heart, which doesn't matter, it's not complex. I thought to myself, after reading that and going through it, I thought, yes, I can play something that Alan White does. <laughs> and yeah, so it just was formative to me. I'll let you in on, on a little secret because, you know, we're all stuck in quarantine here. It's been a month now, and the family is kind of running out of Netflix to watch. So uh, my wife said, well, you know, what else can we do? And my 20-year-old son made me buy a Dungeons and Dragons starter kit. So we've we've taught my wife, who like is like the least geeky person in the world, 
to play Dungeons and Dragons. And by the way, she understands and loves it now and gets it. So I'm very thankful for that. But I, of course, am playing the Dungeon Masters. And, you know, once you're the Dungeon Master, everybody basically has to do whatever you say or you could kill them, right? So my playlist uh, while we play Dungeons and Dragons is basically all mine. So I've been able to introduce them to Close to the Edge, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and then the kid decided he wanted to play 2112 from Rush. So it's been a very progressive rock. I mean, can you ask for better music to play Dungeons and Dragons with? I think it's the soundtrack to a Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> It certainly is, yes. Uh, any final thoughts about Yes songs that you wish to convey to the listenership? Is this an album that you would say for the casual Yes fan or someone who... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They should, yeah this yeah. Is, should be the starting point. Yeah, it really does show just how good of musicians they were, and most are still with us, thank God. R.I.P. Uh, Chris Squire. Mm. It just fits in this time. You know, it's an interesting arc with rock and roll in that as you begin in the early days in the 1950s, you know, it's simple three chords, picked up blues, country, folk. You know, it kind of stays that way. Uh, the Beatles begin to change things and they're the really the first progressive rock band right and so they build this structure that the point is is to take it as far as you can to incorporate all these other musical elements into their craft and you know when they leave the scene then it's no surprise that then the next iteration is this progressive rock scene that comes out of that which takes it to the nth degree to the point of ridiculousness. And of course, there's the inevitable backlash, and that's my second favorite music type, which is punk. You know, so so there you go. I got both ends of the spectrum there. You're basically saying you like both kinds, country and western? Oh, no, no. Country and western, yes. All right, look, thank you so much, Christian, for uh, coming onto the show, and it's been a wonderful conversation about, yes, I don't think I've had one on this show yet. Might have to have something a little bit more proggy somewhere down the line, like go for a full two hours. There you go. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, if you go down Prague, you know, yeah, you're talking four-hour shows or more. Indeed. (laughs) I've never understood those people out there who say, I want the show finished by the time I get from my door to my office door. You have a stop button, and you can have a start button. You can pick it up again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I listen to Hardcore History. That's a five-hour-plus show every twice a year, you know? Indeed. All right, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 133. continuing this orgy of Pantheon podcasters who are talking to me about their favorite live albums. And next up, I have for you one of the two hosts of the imbalanced history of rock and roll, Marcus Goldman, aka Marcus and the Darkest. Welcome to Love That Album, Marcus. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Maurice. It's actually such a thrill to cross over and talk to some of the other Pantheon podcasters 
because everybody's doing such interesting and unique work. So to get multiple perspectives on rock and roll is really fun. Before we actually start talking about your pick for your favorite live album, just give the listeners a bit of a background to Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast. It is a podcast that is just over a year old. We have worked together in radio since about 2002, 2003, 2004. And the podcast basically came about as a continuation of conversations we've had over the years working together in radio. We'd be at a show together, we'd be at an event together, and for some reason, music would always come up. Oh, have you heard this? Have you heard that? So we've been uh, sharing that information and talking about it with passion that we decided after a long time, hey, why don't we just make this a podcast? Mm. And we sat down at a bar one night or one late afternoon, had some food, and wrote out about seven, eight, nine pages of ideas and the podcast was born. Then we kept crafting it and working on it. And about seven months later, we started recording. And here we are 60 episodes later. That's such a wonderful way to start a podcast over food, over a bunch of late night phone conversations and just realizing that, hey, why don't we record this? Oh, yeah. And we just figured out the topics were easy to come about. We had so many ideas between us. It was almost a no brainer in so many ways. Ways, and it keeps getting more and more fun. The research, we keep challenging ourselves for research as we continue to uh, get more and more comfortable doing what we're doing, which is quite different than traditional uh, terrestrial radio. But boy, it's been fun. So I'm very thankful to have a partner like Ray in my life. I'm lucky as hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can tell you guys are having a lot of fun. I was just listening yesterday to your Johnny Cash episode. Thank you. I love listening to your guys' perspectives and telling the story. And yeah, I recommend people out there go and search that podcast out from the Pantheon stable. A lot of great things there. But anyway, look, let's get into talking about your favorite live album. I thought about it after you had posted it out there and I was like, you know, I've been fortunate to see a lot of live shows. I own a lot of live vinyl, but which one is really the most important piece of live vinyl? Which one is my favorite? I can't say which one is the best because that is so so subjective as there are so many phenomenal and exceptional live albums out there but the one I think that really I would have to say is my all-time favorite Cheap Trick Live at Budokan where I was at 12 years old when it came out and it, it was one of those rock and roll albums that kind of hit me in the feelies mm. and you know it just did it's one of those albums that made you feel good and it just hit you differently we all have those albums and music that hit us a little differently while we like so much of it I mean there was Led Zeppelin the Van Halen the Cars you know you had The Clash you had The Kinks I had Hall & Oates I had David Bowie in my life and then you had bands 
like Blondie releasing albums, the winning so many great albums, but this one really stood out. And I'd heard some of the live tracks on radio, and I was like, ooh, what is this? What is this? And the more and more I heard it, the more and more I liked it. To this day, that album still holds a special place in my heart. It really does. That album came out, I think, was it just before or just after In Color? It was right after Heaven Tonight and right before Dream Police. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so that's already like an album in between. I know that the band were very disappointed with the sound of In Color because it sounded to them rather flat. Now, I might be in that minority of Cheap Trick listeners who actually really likes the sound of In Color because it sort of brought out more of their poppy style. On Cheap Trick Live at Budokan, would you say it's more of a hard rock record with strong melodic elements? I would say they're definitely a rock and roll band. Hard rock, I don't know. They blew the house apart that night with their show. Those three nights that they took to record, but at 12 years old, you're like, oh my God, this would be the best concert. Da, 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 you know, and you hear that with all those live albums and some of them you don't realize were recorded over a few nights, but I would say it's a good harder rock and roll album versus a pop album, but hearing the crowd being so so into it you can still when you listen to the album feel the energy of the crowd through the album and I think that's really important you can feel the energy of Cheap Trick feeding off the energy of the crowd Mm. and I think that was one of those elements that I didn't understand why it was hitting me the way it was but probably was hitting me the way it was if that makes sense the crowd it's interesting you bring them up because it really sounds like Beatlemania that's uh, absolutely absolutely insane like listening to the screams and i'm sure they were all well, I, I know they're all big beatles freaks so i wonder mm-hmm. what must have been going on in their heads while being in the eye of the hurricane yep and at that time they started appearing in music magazines so i would see like rick nielsen's guitars and you would see Booney carlos with this cool hat and his cigarette hanging out of his mouth playing his <laughs> drums yep. and of course you know you had the two charismatic guys uh, tom peterson and robin zander and uh, it's just the sound that they put out. I think they're very underrated, underrespected. But again, that was one of those albums that I think was really, really a special live album. And it made me more excited for Dream Police mm. when Dream Police came out, which I still have my original copy of both Live at Budokan and Dream Police on vinyl. Very scratchy. You couldn't play it without <laughs> a scratch. You couldn't play it without a scratch. Right. But yeah, that album is very special. And I mean, if you look at it, not just the three radio hits, ain't that a shame, I want you to want me in surrender, but Clock Strikes 10, Need Your Love, Come On, Come On, Look Out, Big Eyes, it's just a great record. Oh, 
When it's done the way an album should be done, you can listen to it from the first song all the way to the last song. Now, they did release, when was it, in the last 10, 15 years, an expanded version featuring every unique song that they did over the multiple nights of the Buddha Khan? Did you get that? Yes, I did. And it's got like California Man, Down, Stiff Competition, On Top of the World, Oh Caroline. They did the uh, Wiedersen to end it. So, I mean, they did an unbelievable set of live music. I can only imagine what it was like to experience it. So you never got a chance to see Cheap Trick play live at any stage? Oh, I've seen them play uh, four times live here in Philadelphia over the last, how long have I been here? 18 years now. Mm. And I actually got to shake hands with everybody in the band when they played in MMRBQ and they were really nice guys. Except for Boone, they had a different drummer. Boone wasn't with them. That was the question I was going to ask because I'm not really quite sure of my chronology, but I know that there's been some bad blood between Bunny Carlos and the rest of the band. <laughs> so you never got a chance to see him perform live with them? No, it's always been without him. In fact, I remember the first thing that I ever read about the band was in a modern drummer magazine in the early 80s when they, they did an interview with Bunny Carlos. And it just made me laugh, you know, because in that day and age where so many bands were wearing long hair and the popular perception of the rock star and here's this guy with the business suit and the tie coming down the eight to five worker the yep. cigarette hanging out of his mouth he looks like he's heading home for a scotch or a beer and yet he's an absolute monster on the drums but i love that yeah. that was his persona cheap trick over there as a kid were they big in australia during your youth growing up as well yes they were they were very big i didn't actually get any of their recorded material though until the 2010s or something like that i, I i'm really like a latecomer to the cheap trick as an album like buying albums for myself actually i think maybe in the first year or second year of the podcast we actually discussed in color on uh, this show and i had to make the embarrassing confession that I was a late comer to Cheap Trick maybe in the 2000s I think when uh, when I first got my copy of that but uh, as a singles band yeah I mean look I adored Dream Police that might possibly have been their biggest single here I'm not sure maybe Surrender but it seemed like every time I turned on one of the music video shows here Dream Police was being played every time I turned on the AM radio I'd like to think that that was to that point their biggest single and I think I've had this conversation with someone that they might have jumped the shark with the flame that sort of later 80s Cheap Trick era oh. and I didn't particularly like their version of Don't Be Cruel either. I don't know, where do you stand on latter day Cheap Trick? I like it. Um, their last couple of records are actually really nice albums. I'm drawing a blank on them. We played a couple of singles off of them over the last decade at the radio station I work at and they're actually solid albums. They're not radio darling albums but in the vein of rock and roll radio they're really good records. Now what did you think about them redoing 
Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We had a CD version of it. I don't know. I came across it at the radio station. I checked it out, and I was like, oh, that's pretty good. I like it. I like their covers of uh, the Beatles. I like their respect to some of the older bands. I think, again, they're super talented. I mean, Booney Car- Bunny Carlos is a monster on the drums, mm. and he's a big drummer. They're a complete band with a lot of talent. They've never gotten, I think, in some circles, the respect that they deserve as a band and i think they're heavy hitters in the world of rock and roll and i think that even though maybe radio hasn't played a lot of their stuff their later stuff they've still put out a lot of really good music they still sound really good live if they come back your way after all of this is over i recommend you go see them they sound great live Back to Live at Budokan, that's evidence that they were such terrific musicians because the thing is in the studio, and, and this is to their credit, I'd say, is that they were a band first rather than four individual players who wanted to show off their chops. One thing that I think was a great strength is, yeah, sure, they were all individually great musicians, or still are individually great mm-hmm. musicians, but the point is that they realized we're a team, we're a band, we're a group, and we serve the song. And anyone who's ever listened to this podcast knows how much I work at the temple of the song comes first. Cheat Trick obviously realized that, but you know, when you get these little moments, being a drummer, I pay attention to Bunny Carlos and I think you are a monster drummer. You know what else I really like about them is they've stayed relatively low key over their entire career. They've never been press darlings. They've never been press monsters. They've been in the press some when during the MTV days, they did the press they had to. Mostly I think it was Rick Nielsen who did almost all of the press. But they respect the music and they respect the rock and roll and that comes through in all of their music and in their lifestyles. And I think that's one of the many great things about that band. You can still listen to their albums all the way through just like you did when you first got them. And their newer albums, you can listen to them all the way through as well. But I think a Cheap Trick at Budokan still holds the test of time and it still sounds brilliant live today. Now, I believe that there was a second Budokan album as well? There was. Yes, I didn't listen to it. I don't have it. I only have the very first CD I ever bought. It was I can't remember when the second Budokan came out. Let's see. I think it was 1994. But the very first CD I ever bought was uh, Cheap Trick Live at Budokan. The wow. very first CD I ever bought. So <laughs> it holds true to me to the test of time. That album, I think, will always stand still as one of the big live albums out there. And we're lucky. And during that decade, we saw a lot of great live music come into the way of vinyl. Peter Frampton comes alive and there's so many other ones that we could uh, name so a highlight from the album for you i would have to say ain't that a shame They 
do it really well, and I think they paid true tribute to rock and roll and the blues with Ain't That a Shame, and it shows that they understand rock and roll and the roots. I think that was the highlight. First song aside, too, boom. Yeah, it's nice to see them pay tribute to New Orleans, and I think we only lost Dave Bartholomew last year. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to know whether he actually ever got to hear their version of that song, but Bartholomew and uh, Fats Domino, two monster songwriters of uh, of New Orleans, so yeah, it, it was very cool to hear them pay tribute to that side of rock and roll music. All right, any final thoughts on the album? If you've never listened to it from front to back, I highly recommend you give it a listen from front to back. Take the time to really just sit back and listen to it. And if you can, listen to it on CD or vinyl, because as a way, you'll get more of the feel than versus an MP3, which compresses the sound a little bit. It takes away some of the warmth, so if you can, listen to the album front to back in a WAV file and feel that warmth and feel the energy of the crowd. You will really feel it. Great headphone album as well. A phenomenal headphone album. Thank you so much, Marcus, for uh, being a part of this Love That Album pantheonistic orgy, as I'm calling it. I I love these pantheonistic orgies. We need to keep doing them. (laughs) If we ever get around to doing uh, Australian music, I'll reach out for sure because we're going to need somebody to tell us about Cold Chisel and Nick Cave in the early days, in the early days of in excess driving around in a broken station wagon and stuff that you've gotten to experience as a child so that would be great and in your younger years so i have to tell you i'm not the person to be speaking to about in excess i'll talk about that off air if people want to get in contact with you people want to work out how they can listen to your dulcet tones you and ray they can go to the imbalanced history of rock and roll at imbalancedhistory.com that's our website you can find us right on the uh, pantheon podcast network of podcasts we're at Imbalanced Histo on Twitter, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. Fantastic. And I wholeheartedly recommend my listenership to go out and just basically go subscribe to the whole Pantheon network. But if you're going to be selective, then please give the uh, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll guys a tune in. Thanks very much for being on the show, Marcus. So the final part of this pantheonistic orgy of live album discussion, I'm speaking to the host of a podcast that I've only discovered about a week and a half ago or so, and I love it. We share also a love of The Replacements and the song Alex Chilton, as longtime listeners to love that album will know. I'm speaking to Brad Page of the I'm In Love With That Song podcast. Welcome to Love That Album, Brad. Well, thank you so much for having me. This will be fun. I'm really looking forward to this discussion with you. Before we get into talking about your album and you revealing your album, could you please give the listenership out there a little bit of a background as to what I'm In Love With That Song is all about? Yeah, I once read a book about, it was about dogs, and it was about dogs that served in the military in Iraq, bomb-sniffing dogs, and the way they explained how that a dog's sense of smell works versus uh, humans is that if we smell a hamburger, we smell the totality of the hamburger, right? You know when a, a hamburger's on the grill, you can smell it. Oh, that's a burger. But a dog smells the individual components. They can smell how much mustard is on there, how much ketchup. Is there cheese? Is there onions? They can smell the bun. They might even be able to detect, you know, how much fat is in that burger itself. 
And this is a, a roundabout long way of saying what I try to do with my show is to get you to listen to a song, to use your ears the way a dog uses its sense of smell. I've got to say, that, that is not the answer I was expecting, but that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm so impressed with that. What I do is I will pick a song. It's one of my favorite songs. Could be across the spectrum from 60s up to current. It's just a song that I happen to love. And we listen to it together and we try to get into what makes that song work. And so we listen to what the drums are doing and the production techniques and little bits and pieces that you, you know, you may have heard the song a thousand times, but there's always something in there that, subconsciously worked on you but you didn't really even notice it was there so we try to find all those elements the the ketchup and the mustard and the cheese and all those things that go on this burger of a song teachers have been doing that to their students with literature for years and years unless you're a musician and you're listening for stuff a lot of people don't actually sort of analyze or take apart to that extent but it can be really really enjoyable yeah and my show is not specifically for musicians we don't talk about music theory or any of that stuff it's just for music fans and we discover this stuff together i'm no expert i just take the song and i try to understand why do i love this song what is it about this song that works on me and hopefully it works on you the listener too so that's what we do on my show absolutely fantastic and we'll give details at the end of this segment as to where people can find the podcast and how they can find you on social media but i will sort of start this off by saying please people out there if you do have a love of great song structure and great songs then you should really be searching out I'm in love with that song. So Brad, please reveal to me what is the album that you've chosen? What is the live album that is a strong part of your life? I'm a big fan of live records. I grew up in the 70s at the height of live albums. So there's plenty on my list of favorites, but my all-time favorite live album would have to be Wings Over America. Yes. first live album I ever bought with my own. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I saved up long and hard for that one. And a favorite uncle went and gave me a couple of dollars to finish off paying when it was just, I'd just been waiting for so many weeks to save up the money to get it. And he said, no, here you go. Finish it off. Go get it. Tell me, what drew you into Wings Over America? Were you already a fan of the studio albums? Were you just sort of curious to think, what is this ex-Beatle doing now? Well, this was very early on in my music fandom when I stumbled across across the record so I was not really a Beatles fan at the time I mean I sort of knew who they were but I wasn't wouldn't have called myself a fan at that point I just knew a few of the songs and was into live records and picked this record up and it just really blew me away it, it has everything that I want in a live record to me a, a great live record has to have one it has to have a great song selection it's got to have a mix of the hits favorites as well as the lesser known tracks a few surprises in there 
two, the versions have to add something above and beyond what's on the studio records. If it sounds exactly like a studio album, then, well, what do I need the live record for? I'll just listen to the originals. I think as time went on and live records got slicker, they became a lot less interesting to me. The first live album that I bought that I thought was a real disappointment was the Eagles live record. Do you know that, that yes. album? Yes, I know, I know that. That's yeah. the, was that the Hell Freezes Over thing? Or, or, no, or, no. This was the from when they were uh, still uh, to get out. It was that the uh, one that had seven bridges road on it. Yes, yeah. The one that kind of looks like a road case. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And yes, I mean, yes. the performances are great, but they're too pristine in a way. They're, it's too much like just a reproduction of what's on the original records. And it didn't seem, feel like it added anything to me. And I, I think after that, a lot of records got slicker and slicker in that way. I much like the records that are more rough and tumble or just where their artists are stretching out and doing something different. And so I think there's a lot of little spice added to all of the tracks on this record that just make them, I think many of these versions are much better than what's on the studio album. Uh, number three, I think it has to be great performances. And I think it also helps to sort of a four and a half or five on my list of important things is there has to be sort of a story or a history to the record. Why does this live album exist? What is it that it's documenting that, that matters rather than just another tour? And to me, this record has all of those. It covers all of those bases. One thing that has been said a lot about not just this particular live album and the accompanying rock show movie that this essentially was the soundtrack for was mm -hmm. this showed that Wings, in fact, were really a rock band. Now, I know that a lot has been said about the previous studio albums and in fact what came after this and said well they weren't really a rock band as such but when you listen to cuts on this like soily and high 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 and Introduction, a rock show and jet. They were a rock band and hell like, yeah, they're a rock band. And I mean, they sound like a band. And there's not a lot of extra people on stage. There is a horn section, which I think is actually very critical to this record. Mm. I mean, you've got the five-piece band, right? Which to me is wings at their peak. You got Paul and Linda. You got Denny Lane. You have Jimmy McCulloch on guitar, Joe English on drums, and then you've got the four-piece horn section. Unfortunately, I was too young to see McCartney during this period. One of the things that makes this record special, it is a document of the only time Wings toured America. These dates were the only time you could ever have seen, and for years after that, McCartney didn't tour. Uh, so this was like the one and only capture of McCartney in that era, right? But I've seen him since, and the band is great, and he has Wicks on keyboards, who's a great keyboard player, and he does a great job of reproducing all those horn charts, but it's not the same as having a real live horn section on stage with you and that adds some again that sort of extra spice on top of some of these tracks that just really makes this record sound great that's one of the keys i think to this record that you can't underestimate it's easy to overlook but those live horns really do add a lot to these tracks I know that a lot of people have also gone and said over the years that it was going to be Paul McCartney and band, you know, that Paul had gone and said, oh, I want to make a new band and it's going to be us. But of course, you know, Paul McCartney always made it clear that it was him. It was his band. But as you've gone and said, Wings really were a band. You listen to 
the lineup that he's had over the last, whatever, 20, 30 years. And they're fantastic. But it is Paul McCartney and band. Wings right. really did sound like a cohesive unit. And I refuse to believe that he didn't take any creative input from what the rest of the band were doing. I mean, Jimmy McCulloch, phenomenal guitar player. And I'm sure that a lot of it was Paul saying, just do what you do. Yeah, do more of that. That's great. Yeah, to me, McCulloch, he's the secret weapon on this record or the uh, the MVP, whatever you want to call it. I said he is he's the thing that makes this record kick ass. His guitar playing is great, so tasteful but ballsy throughout there's a lot of just you know f- little touches of feedback just real rock and roll guitar on this record unmistakable he's great on every song he never overplays it's rock guitar it's not wishy-washy stuff and he was a handful from all the stories he was yeah. not you know i think 22 years old and unfortunately the talk about wings being a band he actually does sing one track on this record uh, medicine jar It's an anti-drug song, which is sadly ironic because a few years after leaving Wings, he died from a heroin overdose. It's just a, another in a long list of gone too soon, great musicians. But on this record, this is, I think, his shining moment. He's brilliant. I'm often astounded at just how good Joe English is and thinking, why aren't we still hearing about this guy? Rock solid. Again, never overplaying. He drives those songs just the right amount. The knock against McCartney is always that he's wimpy, right? The, to be honest, a lot of the Wings records are a little flaccid. Great tracks across, all, I think, all of the Wings stuff. But I think uh, Wings at the Speed of Sound is just, a, it could have used a lot more balls. <laughs> Venus and Mars, I think, has great tracks, but I've never been real crazy about the production on that record. But it all comes together with this band in these performances. The songs they just they rock and they're gentle when they need to be gentle they're delicate when they need to be delicate they're tasteful when they need to be tasteful but they also a number of songs that just outright rock and you sort of wonder whether mccartney had developed this set with the live album in mind on the album everything is done in order of how we performed it live so you've got the, the opening side that is rocking guitar sort of stuff the second side is paul behind the piano the third mm-hmm. side is all acoustic guitar stuff the fourth side is gentle pop side of things and then the all of the last album is him saying right i'm bringing the rock and roll back in the pre-cd days as a vinyl record this was a three record set which is partly why you had to save up so much money to get it (laughs) me too it's an investment right but there was something about too when you got that big thick package and you this triple gatefold album but it has a great flow to it and you're absolutely correct it is an exact replica if you will of what they performed on stage in the exact order uh, that the songs were performed so it really does capture what that tour was like but the ebb and flow of the set I couldn't imagine a better sequencing of these tracks i wouldn't put anything any other place than where they sit in this particular set list it's just it's a great set list and meticulously arranged Uh, it really works as a live performance Uh, like you said you've got the different sort of phases of the show the rock section to the piano section to the really nice acoustic section in the middle a lot of these things have become staples, I think, of rock band tours as time has gone on, but you didn't really see that a lot in, in that day. I think this show, in many ways, it was a huge production for its time, and 
playing arenas and hockey rinks and the like. I remember actually seeing on television here, he did a Wings Over Australia and there was final show was recorded here in Melbourne at the Maya Music Bowl and I've got a bootleg DVD of it. There's a couple of differences, but it's mainly the same set that they do in yeah. Wings Over America. And of course, he does the obligatory waltzing Matilda reference at some point. So I'll see if you remember this one. Once a jolly swagman. Overseas musicians feel that they have to do that sort of thing, which really annoys the hell out of me. But otherwise, yeah, no, terrific show. So what are your highlight moments throughout the album? Well, boy, there's so many. I think you're hard-pressed to find any concert opener of any band as strong as Venus and Mars into Rock Show into Jet just what a way to set the tone for the evening jimmy mcculloch just tears it up on medicine jar on guitar just a tour de force great performance the version of maybe i'm amazed is maybe my all-time favorite vocal performance on record by anyone ever in the history of recorded music His voice is so damn good on that. I have this theory that great singers reach their peak when they're in their 30s. I think he turned 34 in the middle of this tour, mm -hmm. which now seems so young. <laughs> yeah. But at the day, I mean, like he was an elder statesman of rock almost, you know, there weren't that many 30 plus year old rockers. But I think there's something about just getting that combination of A, the experience of just having done it so long, the control you have over your voice, but it also starts to weather a bit. You get a bit more roughness in there, a little bit less of the baby-faced voice and more of the, uh, there's some grit in there. And it all comes together, I think, on his vocal performances on, on this record. As you would expect from a live record, it's a, it's grittier than his studio performances. And I think all, virtually all the tracks benefit from that. But maybe I'm amazed is just probably go to my grave thinking it's just my favorite <laughs> time. The icing on the cake is Jimmy McCulloch's guitar performance on that is fantastic one of my all-time favorite guitar solos ever and of course it's mccartney played those notes on the original studio version on his first solo album but when it gets in the hands of jimmy and the overdriven guitar the little touches of feedback he takes what was a great structured part and just really makes it magical i just that's a huge high point for me mm. just that track in general but there's so many other great moments on there too one of his most maligned songs i think is my love when I go away, I know my heart can stay with my love. It's understood. It's in the hands of my love. And my love does it good. 
most people think that's real sh schmaltzy track. On this version, there's almost an R&B groove to it, a little bit of a swing to it that the studio version does not have. Silly Love Songs, another a trifle to most people, but I think it actually works really well in this live performance. And the fact that he's singing it and playing that crazy bass part at the same time is just amazing to me. i got to say, to me, one of the greatest bass parts in the Isn't history it? of rock music. It's so melodic and it just yep. pushes forward the theory that he is one of rock's great bass players. My favorite bass player of all time, for sure. record silly love songs and my love i don't care in the original studio version or the live version uh not trifles to me i've always adored those songs if that makes me a wimp so be it i'm with you <laughs> i gotta say that one of the songs on the album and this is going to sound like heresy because the beatles have always meant everything to me and they're because of that, I've never done them on this show. I've never spoken about a Beatles album on this show because I don't want to get all analytical on them. But it might sound heretical, but I think I actually prefer the version of I've Just Seen a Face on Wings Over America over the Beatles version on Help. Had it been another day, I might have looked the other way and I'd have never been aware. But as it is, I'll dream of her tonight. I've always been a sucker for the 12 string guitar and it's just so rhythmic and it has a great country feel really this is the version for me interesting I feel that same way about this version of Long and Winding Road horn section yes yes nobody loves the slathered on strings on the original let it be <laughs> i don't probably phil Spector even regrets that <laughs> in his jail cell somewhere i bet he's sitting there thinking i wish i never did that and the choir and all, all that just just too much but on this version everything about again everything about it is great his vocal performance is great what the horn section does on here i think is fantastic uh, really adds something to that track. This is my favorite performance of them. So overall, if someone were to come to you and say, right, where do I start with McCartney? I've got all the Beatles material. Would you say, right, this is a perfect place where to start because of the position of where it is in his catalog? It was still relatively early days before he was just putting out absolutely everything he wrote. Or would you say, I'll oh, go get this particular studio album? Or would this be the place that you'd recommend people start? I would recommend people start with this record again because the song selection is just so much of his great material from the 70s. 
plus some great versions of Beatles songs on here. He's at his peak vocally. The performances just really come alive. Every All the songs are really energetic and lively, and it's just a pleasure to listen to, I, I would say, for sure. If you want a sampler, a great taste of McCartney at his best, I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to pick another record to start with. You know what? I'm just sort of speaking about this, thinking there was still like another three, four years to go of Wings as a name. And there was, you know, I guess, with London Town, which nominally had a little bit of McCulloch and Joe English, although that was otherwise ostensibly a three-person okay, effort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was the Back to the Egg era, Good Night Tonight era. If there were any songs from the rest of the Wings era that you wish were around for the McCulloch English era, what would you have liked to have heard done in that? Does that make sense? You know, just yeah, looking for well, bringing back to there. Sure. Well, a couple of things. I am a huge fan of Back to the Egg, actually. I think that's his most underrated record. Right it up. did not do well commercially, but I think it's, it's a great record and it's probably the hardest rocking uh, Wings record. Um, I mean, there's still ballads and lush numbers and stuff on there but there's a couple of songs on there more than a couple of songs that really rock uh harder probably than anything not counting the live album but when you go back look at the studio records so i would have loved to hear this the wings over america band tackle a song like getting closer or Mm. old samser to you there's a lot of songs this band really could have ripped into although Lawrence Joubert is an amazing guitar player so no knock against him he's great on that record Steve Hawley is great on drums on that record so it, it, that was a great lineup of Wings they just never found their footing it takes a while I think for a band to find their footing and that was the aborted Japanese tour that never happened but I am a big fan of the Back to the A record you know, London Town is there's a lot of synthy and kind of that feels more like McCartney too than a Wings record to me, if you know what I. Uh, I've never sort of gone to make that comparison. Interesting. I, I I remember at the time thinking London Town was a fantastic record. That was I think the first Wings studio album. Or the, yeah, the first ex Beatle studio album that came out in not in my lifetime, obviously, but in the period since I had become a Beatle nut and sure. had taken an interest in their music. Like you know, Wings Over America had come out, but the first studio thing was London Town. And then when I went back to it a few years ago, and you know, sadly, I thought, oh, no, this doesn't hold up. But I think one song from that album, which I reckon would have been good on the Wings Over America tour, would have been I've Had Enough. The songs that you've already gone and said, I'll say, Am Sir and Getting Closer would definitely definitely have been great in that lineup and i'd add one more and i know you're a fan of this one is daytime nighttime suffering absolutely the very first episode of my podcast i'm about 55 or so episodes into my show and episode number one was daytime nighttime suffering when i decided i what i wanted to do with my show that was the very first song i wanted to tackle because i think that show that song is a masterpiece and there's just so much going on in that great track. And I don't know that he's ever performed that live. That's a good question. I don't I don't know. I know he loves the track. I struggle to think that that song is a B-side. How the hell did it end up? As right? a B- now that we're talking about it, another great B-side, although maybe in some parts of the world there was a double A, but is uh, the song Girls' School, which was yeah. the other side of Mullican Tire. All, all these songs that we're talking about would have worked really well in that Wings yeah. Over America context. Yeah, it's a shame that that band didn't last. It's a shame that that, that next generation of Wings never really got off the ground pun intended mm, which was the one tour that i've seen mccartney on was that off the ground tour the first time i saw him was on the flowers in the dirt tour right. and that was the first time he played in america since 
the Wings Over America tour. That was probably 20 years or it's damn close enough to 20 years between. And that to me was the holy grail was to see McCartney because he just didn't seem like he was ever going to tour again. I was too young for the Wings Over America tour. And then he basically just kind of retreated into the studio and all that through the 80s was making studio records. And this was a guy who I just thought was just loved so much. And I didn't know if I would ever get to see him. Of course, now he's toured multiple, multiple times since then. But I will never forget just everything from buying the tickets to that Flowers in the Dirt tour to, to see it. I actually saw him twice on that tour. It was like a, a life achievement, you know, to see this guy who has just meant so much to me in my life. Uh, and this music has just meant so much to me. Well, look, anyway, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being part of this, Brad. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is, again, it's been a great pleasure for me to just talk about this this great music. I, I know for you and, and for me, music means so much in our lives and to be able to just relive the moments and share it with listeners and each other. Mm. It's just a pleasure talking with you. So thank you so much. One final thing is how can people find your podcast and how can they find you on social media if they so choose? Yeah, you can find the show at our website, which is lovethatsongpodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. Of course, uh, podcast player, podcast catcher of choice should have the show on there. Just search for the I'm in Love With That Song podcast and, and you'll find me. And Please listen and uh, send me your feedback. I'd love to hear what you all think. All right. We'll be back in just a moment. Have another quick break, and then I'll be back to talk about what is happening next month for episode 134 of Love That Album. made it this far then congratulations i'm so happy to have listeners out there who are not limited to 20 minute podcasts this was a lengthy one but i hope you agree that all the presenters who uh, came onto the show had a lot of fascinating stuff to say about their picks and it was really quite a thrill for me to be able to speak to all of those podcasters about albums that they loved uh, i had the week off from work so i was able to speak to each one of these people just about every day over the last week and do all the editing and basically my work this week was putting together this podcast for your oral enjoyment hope that you did enjoy it and certainly as i said if you made it this far then you probably did and my gratitude to you please spread the word that this show exists all right so next month's show may of 2020 episode 134 I'm hoping that Shane Pacey will be feeling better after his recent illness to be able to talk with me about Pentangle's 1969 album Basket of Light. So be looking forward to having that conversation with him. Until next month, and beyond that for that matter, please look after yourselves, look after your loved ones. If you want to hit me up for a conversation on Facebook or 
on Skype, please just send me a note. Love to always have discussions with people about music or just how you're doing. Just please, once again, look after yourself. And until next month, keep listening to lots of great music. Keep yourself sane and all the best. Cheers. Mm-hmm.